too late. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Royal Automobile Club talk show in association with Motorsport. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm joined by the club's new recipient of the Sims Medal, uh, Zef Eisenberg. A massive congratulations. Uh, quite a moment for you, isn't it? I'm wowed and impressed uh, with so many high-caliber sort of people in the industry to win this award is uh, very humbling. Now, you won it for all the sort of multiple speed records that you've set on two wheels now on four. Um, you also you also have the moniker of the surviving Britain's fastest motorcycle crash at 230 miles an hour. It does beg the question, what's the world's fastest motorcycle crash? Well, I don't really know because it hasn't been, been, been reported because the guy didn't survive. <laughs> um, now, you've, you've done so many so many records um, and there's so much to talk about today, but I kind of wanted to rewind a bit. And you started life as a bodybuilder, didn't you? Yeah, I, one of the, let's go right back. As far as I can remember, my father said to me, he used to have a power boat with two petrol engines and I would scream and cry the whole time. He said, any time I stopped screaming and I would be consoled when he put the, basically the throttles to the deck full speed, bashing, jumping with the waves. I started smiling, giggling, I was happy. That really has sort of set the tone really for my life. And there's always been that inquisitive desire to how things work, why they work. Why can't we get more power, more speed, more performance out of that? That's sort of really been my DNA. The whole background when I started Maximus all those years ago, the sports nutrition company, was how can I increase muscle, power, and performance. And obviously my quest, my obsession, my passion led to creating a well-known sports nutrition company, which I later sold. I then woke up in the morning, realized a bit bored. How can I put the same kind of passion into my other area of love, which was obviously V8, motorbikes, cars, all the other kind of areas. And that's exactly the same issues that the athletes have. How can we increase speed, torque, and power? That's the whole genre of what we're all doing. So the same mentality, the same mindset, digging down, analyzing, researching, looking, finding solutions, was what we ended up doing. And we pulled together a team of experts and like-minded people, and we ended up delivering the uh, fastest, most powerful gas turbine-powered motorbike in the world, sort of very early on. We then went further and just keep, kept on pushing records and vehicle power and performances to all new levels. The, the gas turbine bike you just mentioned, we were talking about, about it before we started recording. Uh, you rode it up the hill at the Festival of Speed this year. Just tell me a little bit about, about that bike because it idles at 80 miles an hour. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, for most of us, it's quite hard to sort of comprehend the power that's basically underneath you, that you're holding on to. So let's go back a little bit. You find an old Augusta 109 helicopter, you take the turbine out of that, and you stick it in a motorbike. It it's not that simple, though, <laughs> is it? <laughs> it comes from Rolls-Royce with 420 horsepower, at the output shaft, we increase it to 560 horsepower by using a water methanol injection. That allows us to keep the blades cool, 
and therefore we can put more fuel in to make more power. The torque is 1,100 pounds for the torque at the rear wheel. It's phenomenal. One gear, no gears, one gear. You set the torque that you want. So it's got no direct coupling. It's an air torque coupling because it's a, it's a, it's a, a shaft turbine, which means it has got no so-called blue thrust, flame coming out the back. The thrust from the turbine drives the, the power train wheel, which then drives the gearbox, the bevel box, which takes the power to the small sprocket like a conventional motorbike. So I can actually sit at the start line, increase N1, which is the compressor speed, keep putting more and more and more power on, holding the front and rear brake. When the brakes are really starting to squeak and squeal now, I release the brakes and literally like a catapult down the runway, all the way to 234 miles down to 20 seconds. Just uh, how do you how do you find out you can do these things? You know, as in because obviously the, the the engineering behind it and the thinking behind it, I get where that comes from and your sort of analytical approach to you know how can we go faster, how can we find more power. But in terms of actually riding these things, you know, I've ridden bikes most of my life, um, very badly, but how do, you, how do you sit on that thing, talk it up, and think, this will be all right? Someone has to do it. I'm not, <laughs> I, I mean, let's go explain, let's explain my GCSE project. So I came up with a concept of making a little engine on the back of the bicycle. And I thought that that would be a novel way of creating cheap motorbikes because I couldn't afford to buy a motorbike. So I went out and bought a, a petrol chainsaw, took the motor apart, put it on the back of the motorbike as part of my GC project, and had now a 49cc petrol-powered chainsaw motorbike right on the back, right? And crazy, it all worked. It was just, it was fairly lethal. I mean, it, it, had, it had a centrifugal clutch, you throttled it, and it just lit up, the tires sort of span, everything else, and back then, I didn't know anything about road laws, legislation. I was sort of you know, 14, 15 years of age, and I was going to and from school with this petrol-powered uh, <laughs> bicycle. So I kind of learned that you just have to sometimes try, fall off, try, uh, until you master it. Interesting you should say that. I've actually got an ATCC two-stroke um, engine on my bicycle at home. Uh, and you can buy a kit for 140 quid with a little fuel tank and, you know, it's a separate drive um, and you can do 35 miles an hour kind of tucked down onto it, um, which feels about 70. You mentioned, obviously, try, crash, try, crash. I want to talk about the crash, 230 miles an hour. What, what went wrong? So we already achieved the world's fastest turbine bike in the world at 234 miles an hour, Guinness records, the whole works. My problem is, when's it enough? For most people, that would be great. You put the trophy on the mantelpiece, you go home and you have a cigar and you chill out and relax. No, not me. I want to go further. If we can do 34, why not 244 sort of miles an hour? So we tweaked and this and did various things with it, went out there, and the bike was performing phenomenally. 240 miles an hour at the finish line. The problem was, I didn't know where the finish line was. Because your peripheral vision at that speed is goes from super wide to a sniper. So literally, you're seeing at that speed, literally like a rifle scope, what's going on. Plus, it had no fairing on it. 
So phenomenal wind pressure on the head, about 80 kilograms of wind pressure on the head. My head is sort of vibrating. I can't see. I'm trying to view with one eye. I'm not seeing the visual boards. They're not super glowing and flashing. They're black and white checkerboards. But we're doing a proper two-way average ACU record and Guinness records. There's a lot of control, a lot of strict uh, measurements on there. If I was to fail that run, I've got to do it all over again, all two. So I stupidly thought that I'll just hold on for another few more seconds until I find the finishing boards. The problem was we're doing 400 feet a second. Three seconds later, I'm going, hmm, where are the finishing boards? I don't see them. Instead, I see the grass. And literally, I go, oh, shit. <laughs> There's the grass. We're doing 230 miles an hour. I'm realizing in a fraction of a second, I'm doing all these calculations. If I slam the brakes on now, I'm going to come off the bike and slide at 400 feet a second on grooved concrete runway. I'm going to rip off the leathers, the skin, and the bone, and that's not going to be attractive or pain-free. So I'll just keep on going. I won't break. I'll just hold on and go, c'est la vie. So I hit the end of the, run of the runway at 230 miles an hour, hit the acoustic uh, bank and ramp, took off like Evil Knievel, 200 feet, right? We Surely there was a world record there. There probably, <laughs> probably was. 200 feet we landed, uh, front wheel first into the, uh, the other field. The, uh, we had a ballistic Kevlar a tank to protect the turbine from, if it ever exploded, from hurting me. Unfortunately, the super strong Kevlar tank decided to go straight into my groin, smash my pubic bone, both my pelvises, my hip, everything. Uh, made a right old mess of that. Uh, I was holding on, as I landed, I, I actually was holding both handlebars at the same time, and it sheared the handlebars off with me holding them still. That was the force that we landed on them. So it broke bones in both hands. Uh, it ripped the rotator cuff off the shoulder, the collarbone. Uh, I had a dent in the head. I had a brand new helmet, which now was no use anymore, thank God. It was wearing a brand new helmet. And when they found me, I was dead. I stopped breathing, my lungs had collapsed, and I was no longer. Fortunately, at one of these land speed racing events, the medical side is phenomenal. And literally, as they saw me coming to the end of the runway, the ambulance was chasing me. They realized I wasn't stopping and it was going to end up very bad. They came, they managed to give me all kinds of uh, adrenaline, ketamine, everything else to keep me, me going. The helicopter arrived, the Yorkshire Air Ambulance Service came, managed to whisk me off to Leeds Trauma Hospital, which fortunately is one of the best hospitals in the UK for that kind of thing. And uh, three days later, I sort of came around with a full carbon titanium exoskeleton on me holding everything together, all the parts. They spent about 15 hours basically inserting titanium plates in me, metal bolts, the whole work, which is still there today. And uh, yes, and then the, the painful journey of recovery happened. <clears throat> so that was three months in hospital, three months in a wheelchair. And after about four months, I was getting pretty bored. You know, you get a bit down, dark, black place you get into. I thought the only thing that I need now is a goal. I want to get back on the turbine bike and race on the anniversary of the crash at the same place, same track. Like anyone would think. Yes, <laughs> right. My whole attitude was, I'm going to stick two fingers up at those demons that are in my mind telling me, stop, 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 
do nothing, start knitting, don't do anything anymore, right? That was my whole, you know, approach. I have to take control of my life. I'm not going to let the accident control me. I'm not going to become one of these scared people that doesn't want to go on a motorbike, a bicycle, anything anymore because of those fears. I had everything, PTSD, you name it, the whole works on there. And my team rebuilt the turbine bike, new turbine, everything else, back to full on. I worked literally doing eight hours of physio every single week, training morning, evening, night, the whole works. I built a bed in my gym. Actually, I couldn't, I was on a wheelchair, I couldn't go upstairs to my bedroom. So for six months, I actually put a bed in the gym and basically went from the bed to the gym and back again, continuously, every day, seven days a week. Right? And learned to walk again, how it works. And I remember going, uh, going down to Elvington in Yorkshire with crutches, being helped onto the turbine bike and going down there again at 200 miles an hour was incredibly scary. All the fears you can ever imagine were there. But at the end of the weekend, when you're suddenly covered in oil and grease and this and that, it was the most elevating feeling in the world. And it really was, you know, to the demons, screw you, I'm in control, not you. We're back. Zephyr's back. Yeah. Amazing. Did, uh, have you altered the size of the finish boards since? Uh, yes. So we don't. So, so Zeph likes to uh, help in many ways. We've improved the, uh, the, the stopping system now. So the, the stopping boards are now three times the, the, the size. They've got big red flashing lights on. And uh, yes, Zeph is often mentioned in, uh, in stopping at Everton now. <laughs> and the thing is, when, when, you've, when you've done over 200 miles an hour on a motorbike, do you, I mean, do you ride a bike on the streets? Do you, oh, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. But does that, does that just feel extraordinarily dull? The great thing about it is it massively improves your reaction speeds. It teaches your brain to work at a far faster pace. So it actually improves my riding in London. I ride a lot in London, I have for years, and it just allows you to be much more reactive and seeing dangers ahead of you when you're working those speeds. If you always ride at slow speeds, it could be, make you a bit complacent, a bit sedate. So I feel that it definitely sort of helped my normal sort of riding skills. But no, I mean, I, I love riding motorbikes. I actually find being on a motorbike makes me feel free. I feel alive, whether it's 20 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour. I love being on the back. I'm fortunate in that my partner loves being pillion as well. So we, we, we do quite a few miles you know, around Europe as well. So there are a couple of records you break on sand, um, sort of quite new ones, especially, you know, as in four-wheeled record in a Porsche, over 200 miles an hour. I think you're the only person to uh, hold records on two and four wheels on sand. But also, what I'd love, there's a fact here that I think you're the only person who holds a record on both two and four wheels other than John Surtees. Yeah, that, I, when which, I found that out, yeah, I, was amazing. Like, I was like gobsmacked. I mean, <laughs> I didn't plan to achieve that. I mean, how it started was this. So Malcolm Campbell raced at Pendine. He was, you know, one of the gods of speed. He was, to me, an absolute idol. His incredible engineering and beauty of the Bluebird and all his cars he made. He, you know, for me, he was, you know, a, a, one of the, sort of the posters on, on, on my bedroom back when I was younger. So when they first opened up the racing again several years ago at Pendine, I was one of the first to be down there on the motorbike, went down there, normal production motorbike, uh, ended up getting faster speed, about 175 miles an hour, massively exhilarating, really exciting. 
Obviously, you appreciate with me, that's not enough. We need to go further. <laughs> so I haven't crashed yet. I clearly haven't gone fast enough. So, so I ended up building a 400 horsepower supercharged Suzuki Hayabusa. Why supercharged? The problem with the turbo is, is that the power comes on in a rapid spike, but like a two-stroke. Too aggressive, you can't control. That will spin the rear wheel up, you end up going nowhere. So I thought with a supercharge, I can have effectively torque low down. I can have a nice 45 degree linear sort of torque curve, control it. It's RPM based, so that would work well. And it was a great idea because we now had all the power in the world to go out there and deliver the speed. And in May 18, we achieved what everyone thought was impossible, 201.5 miles an hour on the sand. The wheel spinning was so extreme the front wheel was through the finish line on, on the hall sensors, was doing 202 miles an hour, and the rear was doing 242 miles an hour for half a mile, right? That was the kind of wheel spin there was, and the whole bike was literally fishtailing, right, to the finish line. The front is basically one continuous tank slapper, you know, like this, because it tries to fight the grooves in there. I mean, it's definitely not for the faint of heart, sand racing. Yeah, I was going to say, how, and how do you, did you practice on the sand? Because you, you can't just turn up at the Pendine and do 175 miles an hour, having never ridden on sand Yeah, before. so the Pendine records are in... Actually, maybe you could. <laughs> so the Pendine records are in May. So what happened is, is that in March, if you remember this year, we had quite bad snow and ice, didn't we? Remember in, in the beginning of the year? Yeah. Yep. So I went up to Elvington when they had snow and ice on the track, Elvington, and I was practicing doing 190 miles an hour in the snow and ice on the tarmac. And the organizer said, Seth, Seth, is way too dangerous. We've got to stop. We're not allowed to go out. I said, guy, what are you talking about? We've got a Pendine next month, right? Which is sand and water. If I can't do this, I can't do that, right? So... <laughs> That was the being making yourself familiar with slip and grip and slide was one of the key things. And you then you then returned as, and as part of your TV series to do it in the Porsche and do over two hundred miles an hour on four wheels. How is that? How much harder was that? Because obviously you're nicely safely and you can't fall off. You know you can't fall off a car, um, but you're sort of safely ensconced relatively um, in a car. Was it a very different project to well, doing on the bike? I'm not known for cars, but the problem was someone said to me, Zef, you've done everything you want to achieve on sand now. What's next? And he said to me, what about cars? Oh, cars, that's an interesting idea. What about a car? Yeah, I never thought about that, right? So then my brain goes into overload. I'm thinking, right, what car can we put on the sand? Two-wheel drive will just spin. Four-wheel drive will give us better traction. What's got low aerodynamics to help you know, cope with that? We need a ton of power because the sand sucks power out. We all know that when you walk on sand, it's much harder than on tarmac. It just sucks the power out of you. So we're going to need at least double the horsepower of the car. What car is easy to tune? After lots of testing back and forwards, which is all shown in the TV program, we chose the Porsche 911 Turbo S. The problem is it only has a measly 580 horsepower, which wasn't going to be enough. We went to the... Uh, went tarmac racing with that, 175 miles now in the mile on tarmac. Clearly, nowhere near enough power at all. So we upped that, massive turbos, bored the engine up to 4.1, took it up to 1,200 horsepower at the rear wheel, which is 1,500 horsepower out of the engine. All the power we wanted in the world. And we did lots and lots of practice. We went to the, Silver, uh, the Porsche Silver Experience Center, where they have the, the, the ice 
uh, hill, and they've also got the, the water uh, disc. Basically, it's to teach you about slide and control. And what I wanted to do is find out with the Porsche at what stage it spins, at what stage you can get it back in control again, what happens at high speed if it does spin? What do you do? Do you try and save it or do you go with it? All these little tiny things. So we've done a lot, a lot of practicing to make sure, because where do you practice on sand at 200 miles an hour? You just can't, there is no way to do that at all. So we went down there the first time on the sand was on the day, that was it. That was the first time we've ever been on the sand. And we managed to have a little bit of a practice uh, session the day before on the on the Friday, just over, like say, about an eight, eighth of a mile, just seeing acceleration and grip and maybe what tires sort of would work. Another problem we had was tires. You know, what tires you use? Normally, high-speed tires, you use a slick, wouldn't you, or a cut slick? That's no point on sand, is it? So we have, we, have, we can't use snow tires because they're, they're only rated 149 miles an hour, so they disintegrate. Literally, the rubber starts to fly off. So we had to use high-speed rain tires and hope, again, hope, cross fingers, that would, that would work. <laughs> so we went down there. And on the first run, we went down and it was very, very gentle. You can appreciate super, super gentle throttle with this of the power you have. And we managed to get 210 miles an hour, fastest ever speed, you know, wheel-powered vehicle, Pendine, on the very first run. And just as I slowed off, just as I, I, I didn't brake at all, because you can't brake on sand, you can appreciate, as I, as I slowed down, the weight went from the rear to the front, and it went into a quarter mile four-wheel slide, just drifting on the sand, with me with full reverse lock, right? White as a sheet, right? Uh, you know, and, I, and I sort of arrived, arrived uh, back at the, the paddock on the other side, and the team behind me says, Zef, do you have a little moment? I go, yeah, just slightly. Yeah, we saw that. You had, you had the tire marks were very strange. It was, it was sideways. <laughs> like this, for about there were four tires. For a quarter, yeah, yeah, for quarter right. mile. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then we went back the other way, and it was, and that was a lot softer. The sand, a lot more uh, dry, so a lot more stick. So that was quite scary because if you've ever been down a Pennine, the course is actually follows the head round, headland round. So at 50 miles an hour, there is no bend. At 200 miles an hour, it feels like a sharp bend. And you're going around and you're literally steering like this around the headland. And you're thinking like, this is not safe because if I now change gear. If you're thinking that. <laughs> yeah. And you, if I go back to the safety, the car was really built for safety. We had a full six point roll cage, six point harnesses. We had door on there as well, everything. I even had a dream the week before that I end up in the sea. I worked out now, we had carbon doors with Lexian windows. You can't open the windows at all because they're, they're proper Porsche Cup racing doors. So I thought, well, if I slide and end up going to the sea at maybe 100 plus miles an hour, I'm gonna get about maybe, what, 20 meters into the sea and about 10 meters down. They're all following behind me at 40 miles an hour, I'll be dead. I can't open the doors from the water pressure. So I ordered a scuba bottle and put a scuba bottle in there with a mouthpiece. That was in the car as well. Just thinking of every possible thing that could go, could go wrong. We got back and we worked out we'd actually got the flying mile record in the first practice runs, which was like phenomenal. With 210 miles an hour, I was like, you know, ecstatic. 
Everyone said to me, who's my, who's my girlfriend? Okay, Zeth, can we go home now? Can we go off to the pub and have a nice slap up meal? She, she hasn't learned, has she? <laughs> no, no, no. I said, what are you talking about? We're, we're in map one, which is, the, which is the lowest power. Let's get the power in now. Let's really see what we can do. No, 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 no. Yes, 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 right. <laughs> we turn up the power to now a little bit more power, not full power at all. We're going down a quarter of a mile from the finish line. We're already doing 215 miles an hour. It's going like the clap. I think, yeah, this is going to be a 225 mile an hour run. This is phenomenal. But remember, we're on a slight bend around the headland. We're in fifth, we're in fifth gear, maxing it out. Going to sixth gear, that momentary loss of traction between the gear changes caused the whole rear to slide out at 215 miles an hour. And I'd practiced it in my mind hundreds of times. If that happens, you just floor the throttle. That's it. Just floor the throttle, maximum RPMs. It went into five 360 pirouettes at 215 miles an hour for half a mile jumping sideways down the beach like this arriving five meters from the sea, right? And I stopped and I was like, oh my God, am I alive? Am I this? I've actually survived. We did six to seven G on the spins. I actually blacked out on the spins, but subconsciously I had got my foot to the throttle. So that allowed the sand not to build up in front of the tires and not to 360 pirouette. So sub, thank God, subconsciously, I managed to sort of keep it spinning, arrived there and I was like totally euphoric they all like in complete panic and shock. Oh my God, is he dead? They don't know if I'm alive or anything. Because obviously I'm two miles down the beach. They're all back that way, right? I'm right. I'm right to sort of like crawl myself out of the car. And, I, and I, I'm going like, yeah, yeah, I'm alive, I'm alive, alive. And they're going like, oh, gee. Well, well. <laughs> Unfortunately, all four tires had been slashed, right? From the spin. Because there were a lot of shells on the beach as well. So all tires, four tires were slashed. And we realized, okay, right, now it is off to the pub. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Much the relief of your girlfriend. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, now we, we've only got sort of five ten minutes left, but I wanted to talk about uh, your record on the the electric bike, the TT Zero bike, because um, there's obviously the backstory to that is while it's you know it's it's, it's a sad story, it's obviously you know it's, it's got a good ending to it. So just tell me a bit about that. Yeah. So, Alman TT, I love those guys. They are more bongers than me. They're the bravest of the brave. They are the gladiators of motorsport. There is no room for error, as we all know, if anything goes wrong at the Ironman TT. So we had a fantastic guy called Daley Matheson who called me up and said, listen, Zeph, you know, do you want to get involved? We met, we chatted, we hit it off like that. It was fantastic. We ended up looking after him. We, were, we met Dr. Mikkel, who, who was the man behind the Nottingham electric land speed bike. This is a bike that had, there was three times podium winner behind, you know, John McGuinness, the whole work. This is a real proper contender. I thought, what a great collaboration. We're going to put our expertise, Dr. Mikkel's, Deli Matheson riding it, and we're going to podium win. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go and, you know, knock the, uh, uh, the boys off the top and grab it. We were down a week there. Uh, dinner, lunch, breakfast with daily, going over race preparation, what we do, the whole works. On the race day, I got a, I got a um, the day before the race day, I got a text from his wife and said, I'm sorry, daily is no longer, right? And you think it's a joke. You think like, that's a bad joke. You know, tell me now that's not true. Then you realize that that's not 
a joke, it's real. And it was absolutely devastating. We all know that when you get involved in Antietam or any form of racing, there is dangers involved. It's what I do as well. But when it actually happens to someone you really, really like as a friend, it's, it, it's a massive stomach punch. And, you know, I vowed to his family and his wife that I would finish the story. I would take that bite to world record glory. And that was my commitment and promise. And that's all we did. And we got the bike back. Dr. McKellen and I, we worked and we're going, right, not 37 miles, one and a half miles. We need to go and squeeze as much juice and voltage out that battery into that motor, one and a half miles. And we spent, you know, ages trying to do it. I remember going down to Bruntingthorpe on the Friday before the race, going back to back to the testing. And I'm going, we haven't got the power. We haven't got the power to really nail this. We, we don't want to just get it. We want to really nail these speeds. So I said to the guys, I don't care what you've got to do. You've got to pull some rabbit out of the hat and achieve what you can do. We went back till three in the morning. We're on the dyno with thermal testers and currents on the batteries. If you get them wrong, they explode and blow up. And we managed to get, we managed to increase the power by another 30, 40% on the motor. We went down on the uh, El Elvington and on the first run, boom, got it like this. And the, it was phenomenal. It was pulling, you know, 197 miles an hour on the GPS, right, just over a mile, which is the same speed as a Kawasaki H2. Right, this electric bike, one gear, no gearbox, no nothing. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. But we'd really pushed the boundaries of the battery pack. And I remember Dr. Mikhail telling me, he said to me, listen, Zeb, we really, really pushed it. Just please be careful. If you smell a sweet chestnut smell from the batteries, it means they're now it's too late. catching fire. And if you hear a sort of like microwave popcorn sound, they're now exploding one by one. Get off the bike. <laughs> right? okay. So, you, so you, you're, you're kind of like riding the bike with this in the back of your mind. Uh, chestnut smell, popcorn noise. <laughs> watching the clocks, watching the voltage, right? So, you know, and you're getting, you, get, you, you do get fuel anxiety on the electric bike because you're sort of watching it and you're watching the voltage drop down. Going, have I got enough to do my second return run and all this kind of stuff? But by the end of it, what was amazing was we started off at the event and I'm known for my big turbine bikes and the big uh, turbo bikes. And we had all the milk float jokes. Oh, that's going to get race milk floats now, fastest milk float in the world. And by the end of it, it was like, respect. Okay. <laughs> that, was, that was an impressive speed. And it really was. And we had uh, Daley Matheson's wife down there. Uh, the media were down there. And it was a real, it was a send off that I wanted. The story was now finished. It was beautiful. And... We've now formed such a great relationship, Dr. McKellar, myself, and Nottingham University, that this is the start of some really crazy electric. We've got a plan for 2020 now. I was going to ask as, as a sort of final question, where do, you, where do you go from here? Well, as you've probably seen today in the Rotunda down there, we've got the Eisenberg V8 motorbike. This has been a four-year obsession to build the smallest, lightest, most powerful V8 motorbike in the world. We've managed to squeeze a 480 horsepower aspirated engine into a motorbike weighing 280 kilos and the same wheelbase as a Ducati Divel. Okay. It's got a flat eight configuration, the same as a Ferrari. It's, it revs to 11,000 RPM, it screams like an F1 car. It is phenomenal. 
It's taken me years and years of pain and trauma to get the bike to where it is. We formed a collaboration with ProDrive to help get us to that kind of production stage with all the legislation and all those things. And we started it for the first time yesterday. And it's just, it, 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 your hair comes on the back of your neck when you hear it. It's just, it's like intimidating. And it's, I want it to be like a, 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 an old school muscle bike. I don't want some fancy Tron type, you know, electronic looking thing. I want it to be like a proper old school muscle bike, but just bigger proportion. You get on it and it scares you. It actually scares you. When you start this thing up, it's like you can feel, you know, it goes through you, the power. And the torque is ridiculous. It's got twice the torque of a Triumph Rocket 3, right? You know? <laughs> so we are going to have to have electronics on it. You know, the kind of like rain mode, street mode, race mode, because it's going to scare a lot of people when they get on it. I mean, that's the power of most full-on power turbo land speed bikes for the street. But it is just, yeah, that's been my pride and joy. I'm hoping that we'll be able to get that to the public in limited production, very exclusive to those who are brave enough to ride it. I'd love to say I was, but I just, I just don't think I am. Um, Zef, the, going back to the Sims medal, uh, the winner is basically um, in recognition of an outstanding contribution to motoring innovation. I think everyone listening and watching uh, now sees exactly why you have won the Sims medal. Congratulations again. It's fantastic to talk to you. We, we could talk for hours and hours, I'm sure, but you've got a busy, busy day ahead uh, as, as a receiver of that medal. Um, but thank you so much and congratulations thank you very much much appreciated <laughs> thank you we will be back very soon for another talk show thank you so much for listening thank you so much for watching see you soon bye bye